0: Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, and as always, we have an amazing guest. Jeff Dyer is the co-author of a new book called Innovation Capital, How to Compete and Win Like the World's Most Innovative Leaders. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Jeff, you are a prolific author in this space, and you've written three books, I believe, on innovation, Innovator's Method, the Innovator's DNA, and your most recent one, Innovation Capital. So I wanted to get you on the Inside Outside Innovation podcast for a number of reasons. First, give our audience a little bit of background about how you got involved in innovation and some of the things that you've learned over the years.
1: My interest in innovation really was triggered through a conversation with Clayton Christensen, friend, who's a professor at Harvard Business School. He had written a book, The Innovator's Dilemma, that had attracted a lot of attention, which was about how companies could come in at the low end of the market with a very different business model and move up market and disrupt incumbents. And during a conversation, I asked Clay, do you know anything about where these disruptive business ideas come from? Do you know if anybody studied those? His response was no, and we thought, well, let's see if we can study innovators to see what we can learn about how they generate creative ideas and if there's Mm -hmm. sort of any techniques they use. And that really led to about an eight year study That was published in the Innovator's DNA, which basically the story is while most of us think creativity is genetically based, in fact, it's more learned than it is genetics. And psychologists have shown this in a variety of studies. And what people do to get creative ideas is they turn to certain behaviors that help them to generate creative ideas. And so what we learned is that questioning behaviors, observing behaviors, Networking behaviors and networking for ideas in particular and, and experimenting were behaviors that were more pronounced in innovative entrepreneurs, and they helped trigger new ideas. And so The Innovator's DNA was my first book, which was really about how do you get creative ideas.
0: And then you moved on and, and got a little bit more tactical, it sounds like, with The Innovator's Method. Talk a little bit about that Yeah,
1: and then what we had was, you know, many people would come to me, uh, my co-author Nathan Furr, and they'd say, hey, I have this cool idea. I think that it would be good to have a way to monitor a baby's pulse and their oxygen to prevent SIDS. Do you think this is a good idea? And they had used the innovator's DNA, that model as a way to generate ideas, and now they wanted to know whether it was worth investing their time and money on. So the innovator's method emerged as a study of both individuals and organizations that were really good at testing and validating ideas. The innovator's method, there are four steps to the method. The first step is generating the idea, the insight that you think might create value. Then the second step is once you have an idea that you think might create value, then you have to make sure that there's a customer that you're nailing a pain point, a job to be done. And so, you know, someone's willing to pay to have that problem solved. And then it's sort of the lean startup, build, test, learn process of doing rapid prototyping of solutions to see what might work. And then finally, you got to find the right business model to take it to market. That was the study that followed the innovator's DNA. So the innovator's method is really about how do you nail it, sort of the idea before you scale it. And that actually then led to our most recent book innovation capital because many people then came to us with an idea they said they had used the innovators method they had sort of tested it they thought it would work but they couldn't get the resources to <laughs> right. implement it right to to take it forward and these were people not just who were wanting to start new companies new ventures but people inside organizations would come and they would say you know i have these ideas And, you know, there's something I think that's an important initiative for our company, and I can't seem to persuade others to give me the resources and the sort of authority, the okay, to really launch these ideas. And so we decided we wanted to study some of the world's best innovators and innovative leaders in particular to see how did they go about getting resources and support so that they could actually implement and commercialize ideas.
0: Hey, listeners, I wanted to pause this interview for an exciting new announcement. We are bringing back the Inside Outside Innovation Summit right here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Mark your calendars for October 20th through the 22nd. Tickets are on sale at theiosummit.com. We are going to have experts from the world of Disney, Facebook, American Express, Nike. All these folks are coming together to talk about innovation, disruption, startups, and the world that we live in today. Check it out at theiosummit.com, and we'll see you in October. Yeah, and the book is amazing because you had a chance to interview people like Mark Benioff and Salesforce and PepsiCo and and Marriott and Nike to get some insights into bigger organizations and how they're approaching innovation. So let's unpack that a little bit and talk about what are some of the core findings in the book and what should the audience expect to see when picking this copy up?
1: I would say the innovation capital is really about how to become an innovative leader and how to win those resources to turn creative ideas into innovations. Mm-hmm. there were a couple of triggers for this particular study in this book. One was a conversation with Mark Benioff, co-founder and CEO at Salesforce.com. And we were having a conversation about his success as a leader, and he actually used the term innovation capital in our conversation. And we said, sort of, what do you mean by innovation capital? He says, well, over 20 years, I've built up what we might call innovation capital that I can spend to try new things, to change the organization, to change products, to basically change what needs to be changed. He said, whoever comes in and is the next CEO is not going to have as much innovation capital. Hmm. They're going to have to accrue it on their own. They're going to have to earn it by being an innovative leader. That's sort of the only way you can get it. So then we sort of explored. So is innovation capital just like political capital? I mean, help us understand how you think about it basically we discovered as we interviewed people who were looking for sponsors that when a sponsor looks at whether or not to provide financial resources or maybe to join a team, you know, somebody's got an innovative idea, there's a project team, they're trying to decide, should I join this team? They really look at three things about the person. The first thing they look at is a dimension of their human capital, their sort of personal skills. And what they want to know is, do I think this person has the skills to successfully implement an innovation project? And as we dug deeper and we interviewed Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, um, Satya Nadella, Benioff, Indra Nui at PepsiCo, Arne Sorensen at Marriott and others, what we learned is that when others would consider an idea, they were looking at you and trying to decide, does this person, have the ability to really look into the future very effectively and see opportunity. Right. And so there was a skill we learned that these folks had, which we call forward thinking. And that was one of the human capital skills that was really important to deciding whether to sponsor a project. So is this person forward thinking? Were they good at creative problem solving and managing a problem solving process that involves learning something that's really new or pursuing a really novel idea. And this is where, for example, Elon Musk and others talked about using a first principles problem-solving approach, which Mm -hmm. was they were really good at identifying the constraints to achieving a solution and then figuring out how to get solutions there. And they were really good at persuasion. And we actually identify seven tactics in the book that they tend to use to help persuade others.
0: It's so interesting. It's almost like this concept of innovation capital is a way for outsiders looking at someone to de-risk the whole concept and by definition you know innovation is risky or there's some risk involved because it's something new or different and this idea of innovation capital being a form or ability to help somebody determine and de-risk their willingness to be a part of that that new journey
1: that's a great insight in fact we talk about what we call the innovator's paradox at the beginning of the book which is really basically this idea if you're going to be an innovative leader, that means you have to try and take novel ideas forward. But by definition, a really novel idea is risky, right? right? Nobody's done it before. You want to go get the resources to sort of implement it and test it and see if it will work. But the problem you face is that sponsors want you to de risk it, right? They right. want you to figure out how to make sure it's going to work before they want to give you the resources. But the paradox is you need the resources in order to de-risk it. So innovation capital is really the way that you convince others that despite the fact that this is a risky idea, a risky project, I have some human capital, some experience at leading projects. I have social capital. I know people, the right people to bring others involved in this project. And the third dimension of innovation capital is a record and a reputation and track record for innovation. So if people have seen that you've done something like this before, then those things combine and it's basically then a decision that's made based upon a combination of, do I think this person has the skills to lead the project? Do they know others that they can bring in with the right resources? And do they have the reputation to pull it off?
0: I like the the three components, the human capital, obviously, and the social capital, and then reputation capital. In your research, did you determine that one or more of those particular categories are more important or less important, or is it really the combination of those three things? Or talk a little bit about that.
1: We actually depict these in a graphic where they're all sort of three gears that are connected. And that's because let's assume that you have led a project at your company You've been a founder of an initiative and it's been successful. You've developed some reputation as a result of this particular project. Mm -hmm. You can now leverage that reputation to meet people you otherwise wouldn't be able to meet, right? Because now they've heard of you. Mm -hmm. And that allows you to then connect with people to get ideas, to get resources for new projects. And as you do that, as you meet other people, then this also helps you build your own sort of personal skills at meeting others, convincing others to support you. And so what we see here is basically there's this sort of mutual causality among the three that as you build and leverage one, it tends to help you build and leverage the other two.
0: Yeah, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy as you build out the Mm skill sets in each of those three particular categories. Talk a little bit about in these particular areas, are people naturally more gifted in particular areas or how can one if maybe you you don't have a lot of social capital to begin with how can you actually build up that particular skill set so that you can get the idea of innovation capital moving forward
1: we suggest you start with your human capital which would be first step is to try and be forward thinking
0: mm-hmm.
1: now it's true that some people are more naturally inclined at being able to sort of imagine the future and that they use that technique to try to understand what will people want next what will customers want next two years three years five years down the road and what will new emerging technologies enable us to do that's something that many people come by more naturally mm-hmm. they just tend to be thinking about the future and looking for opportunities for the future for others it's not as natural so it helps if you have some specific sort of questions that can guide you and some techniques you can use to look into the future. So that's part of what we will do in each of the chapters is try and give you some techniques and advice on how to build a particular skill or how to build your social capital or how to build your reputation capital. For example, in terms of understanding what customers and people want next or technologies, we recommend looking at each year the inc 50 or fast company 50 or the emerging new companies Mm -hmm. that are growing quickly offering typically a new value proposition and often with a new business model and if you can be doing that you know even once a year you step away you spend some time you really understand what are the brand new emerging technologies and the companies that are launching those to market that can help you to understand what new emerging technologies might enable you to offer something to the market or create an opportunity.
0: I think that's a fascinating idea around that when you're looking outside to different companies or other things that also allows you to bring in potentially making connections to that social capital, you know, networks that are beyond your industry or beyond that you can then later bring to bear as well.
1: I think that's right. On the social capital front, the insight that we try and share is that most people think that your strong social ties, the people you know well, are going to be most important for being sponsors or helping you to achieve something in business. Mm -hmm. And what's surprising, that number, there's a, a fellow named Robin Dunbar, who has done research on sort of how many people we can each develop strong social ties with. He calls it the number of people You wouldn't feel embarrassed about joining uninvited for a drink if you happen to bump into them in a bar.
0: Right, right.
1: And he says it's about 150 people that we can sort of really keep strong social ties. And most of us think those are the folks that are most important for our career. The fact of the matter is the weak social ties, the friend of a friend, the acquaintance, people that you don't know well are likely to be much more important. And research by Mark Granovetter at Stanford shows that when it comes to finding out about new jobs or new information or new ideas, he finds that weak ties are always more important than strong ties. And the reason for that is just sheer volume, right? Mm -hmm. You've got 150 people in your strong tie network, but there are literally thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people you could connect to very quickly through weak ties. And what we try and help you understand is that you have to learn how to connect to others through weak ties because the person that has that right expertise or the right knowledge or the funds, they're often and typically people you don't know well. Right. And so you have to actually learn how to be really good at leveraging your weak ties in order to get resources to be an innovative leader. Well,
0: I love the concepts in the book and and I like the evolution that you've seen. So let's talk a little bit about that evolution. So you've been, again, in this space and, and seeing how innovation has kind of changed. What are some of the things that you're seeing, and why do you think it's becoming more and more important? And more people are asking or trying to get this skill set that maybe haven't even thought about innovation before?
1: When we look at history and we look at the leaders that have had real impact, they're leaders that have been good at leading innovation. If you even go back to Thomas Edison, mm-hmm. you know, one of the persons we think of as a great inventor. Well, one of his contemporaries was Nikola Tesla. And today we know about Tesla because of the car company. Right, And he had lots of brilliant ideas. And yet he was not able to figure out how do I bring the people together and the financial resources together to commercialize these ideas and make them a success. In fact, it was George Westinghouse, an entrepreneur who came and took a lot of his patents and his ideas and made them a success. In comparison, Thomas Edison was not only good at sort of coming up with the ideas, but he was great at enlisting others and bringing them into his lab to generate new innovations. But he was terrific at publicity for his ideas. He would literally take a new invention down to Scientific American, the day of the invention, like the phonograph, Mm -hmm. um, which was an important publication of the day, and he would show it off and excite people about the invention. When he did interviews with reporters, they said he sometimes would rub soot on his face before the interview and come <laughs> out of the lab like he'd been you know, hard. hard at work, <laughs> right? He developed relationships with the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, J.P. Morgan, and in fact, got resources from them to launch his company. And not surprisingly, J.P. Morgan was one of the first homes that got electricity in New York City we see someone like an Edison and what's different about an an Edison and a Tesla, it's not just the ideas. There's lots of good ideas out there, but in fact, it's the ability to grab those ideas and to figure out how to bring them to light and to have them create value. We saw that difference with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak at Apple, great inventor and even built some innovation capital, but Jobs much better as an innovative leader Mm -hmm. And so I think today it's more important because there's a lot of competition for resources, and there's lots of ideas out there that people have. Many people wanting to launch new initiatives or start new companies. And the real challenge is how do I compete and win those resources that I need, including people, their minds, their expertise, to join my projects so that I can successfully implement, commercialize my idea and have it actually create value.
0: I love it. I really do think that this is an interesting book because it does give some of that tactical advice of how do you actually do this and how do you raise particular parts of your game to become that innovative leader that is so vital in the world that we're living in today. Jeff, so if somebody wants to find out more about the book or about yourself and that, what's the best way to do that?
1: Well, the book is coming out. It'd be published by Harvard Business Review Press. There is a website, Innovators DNA. So there has been a lot of interest in innovation work and our ideas since we published the innovators DNA in 2011. We have a company that I've co-founded with Hal Gregerson, a co-author of innovators DNA and Nathan Furr, co-author of innovators method. And so if you went to that website, we'll plan to have a lot of information about innovation capital on innovatorsdna.com. And those would probably be the best ways to learn about more about the book.
0: Excellent. Well, the book is called innovation capital soon to be out. And I uh, thank you again, Jeff, for coming on the show and telling us a little bit more about this.
1: Thanks, Brian. Appreciate you inviting me.
0: That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out insideoutside.io or follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast or at Ardinger. Until next time, go out and innovate.